0: The importance of developing the character of the kingdom, because uh, obedience produced the character, and without the character, we will not inherit the throne, for God will not have his throne suffer corruption. And as we said, if we give somebody a position of authority without uh, the character, then uh, we open the door to corruption. But we had also distinguished between the meaning of holiness and righteousness. Holiness being who God is, righteousness being what God does. And how that we are called to be holy even as our Father in heaven is holy. Because out of all character, conduct will develop or will be emanate. In other words, and Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And it is the fruit of the kingdom, or shall we say, the conduct of the kingdom that we are now going to look at. But in looking at this subject, we will deal also with what in theological terms is known as the doctrine of soteriology—that That is uh, the doctrine of salvation. And we will be looking in this section on the full salvation. And by that we mean the three tenses of salvation. We are saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And we will look at the subject. Now, first of all, as we said in the last uh, session, are we called to be saved or are we saved to be called? And to what are we called? We're called to his kingdom and glory. And we establish the fact uh, that we are called to that messianic kingdom. Now, the mere fact that we're called to that kingdom shows that we are not yet in it. The kingdom that we are in is the eternal kingdom. And that kingdom we have been translated into. Or as it says in the Colossian epistle, he has delivered us. Past tense, like Israel, we're delivered out of Egypt. He has delivered us out of this world and out of sin that we might be translated into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, we have been translated out. All right, so from that point of view, I want us to see the kingdom that we are called to now and the mere fact that we're called to it shows that it requires a journey, like the wedding feast. He said, go and call those that are bidden. Go and call them to come. And it's an invitation to come. And I want you to see the mere fact that the calling is used here shows that we're not yet in that kingdom and that it requires a journey to get there. And our conduct on that journey is what we're going to look at. We've established that by grace we are saved, not of works lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. But how that having been saved, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. All right, so how we walk now is going to determine whether or not we will be judged worthy to inherit that kingdom. We had mentioned that Adam was saved by grace, or at least created by grace, and having been created by grace, he was called to a walk of obedience. We saw the same pattern in the life of Abraham, how that Abraham, also having been justified or had imputed righteousness granted to him by grace, he was now to walk a path of obedience. Likewise, Israel. And we're going to use Israel as the example in this uh, session. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me, would you please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And here we see that Paul likens The Christian life to a race. He likens the Christian life to a race. We pick it up in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We will read from verse 24 to verse 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, the question we must ask ourselves is, from what? Was Paul suggesting the possibility of being disqualified from? Eternal life? No. For eternal life is a gift of God. Eternal life a gift. The kingdom a reward. And how that we neither attain the new birth experience... By works, neither do we maintain it by works. We neither attain it, neither do we maintain it by works. But what we see here is that we are called to work the moment that we are born again. In other words, what are we saying here? We're saying that the moment we are born again and we have received eternal life, that but gives us a starting place or a place on the starting line of the race set before us. We cannot run that race until first we are soundly reborn and are the recipients of eternal life, acknowledging that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. That gives us a place on the starting line of the race. Now then, Paul's word of exhortation here, writing to the Corinthian church, a group of people who were already born again and had begun their journey, he calls their attention to the fact that they are running the race. Now he said, run, that you might receive the prize. For many run, but not all receive. I want you to see that statement is exactly the same as Jesus when he said, many be called, but few are chosen. In other words, many run, But not all receive the prize. Therefore run that you might receive it. All right, now what is the prize? It's that prize that Paul caught a glimpse of, which he testifies about in Philippians chapter 3, when we cited uh, his own testimony, when he said, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching out for that which lies ahead of me, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is the prize uh, that he wants us uh, to focus our attention on. We will, of course, uh, establish what is that prize uh, as we go on. But I want us to see that there is a possibility of being disqualified from it. And Paul saw that, for he said, Having preached unto others, I discipline my own body and keep it in subjection, lest I myself end up being disqualified. And that is why, he, in Philippians 3, he did not guarantee himself the prize, not until he had finished the race. For he said, "I speak not these things as though I had already attained, either were already perfect." But he said, "I press toward it." But Paul, in all confidence, writing to Timothy at the end of his ministry, knowing that very soon he was going to be executed, he testified and said, "I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course." I have kept the faith, therefore there is reserved for me a crown in glory, in other words, a place on the seat of the messianic reign of Christ. He was confident that he had finished his race. Likewise, so did Jesus at the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was beseeching the Father to glorify him. When he said, Father, I have finished The work that you have given me to do. I have glorified you here on earth. Therefore glorify thou now me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. You see, Jesus requested glorification on the basis of a finished work. Paul was confident that he had won a crown on the basis of a finished work. Brethren, that is what we have to consider here is the work that we are called to do. And our conduct as a Christian will determine whether or not we are judged worthy of that kingdom or not. All right, so having established that, Paul then cites Israel as an example of a people who were, to a large degree, disqualified. And that was something that he himself feared and knew was a possibility built on the testimony of the history of the nation of Israel. And as we often say, "Who he who is ignorant of history is bound to repeat it. And so to avoid the tragedy that Israel fell into, Paul brings our focuses our attention on them as an example. We pick it up now in chapter 10 in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate that same spiritual food. And all drank that same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they also lusted. Remembering now he's writing to a group of Christians in a church who had already been saved and it is a possibility or possible for Christians, even though born again, to still lust after the things of the world. Just as Egypt had been delivered from from, um, um, Israel, I should say, had been delivered from Egypt. But whilst in the wilderness, they turned their gaze back to Egypt. And they lusted after the onions and the leeks and the garlic. You know, that they were still very much in their minds. And they hungered after the things they had left behind. And God has saved us, as it were, out of our Egypt, the world. But it's still possible for a Christian to set his mind on the things of the flesh and remember the good old days of the things that he used to revel in before he was saved. And I want to tell you that if we focus our mind back on the things that God saved us from, the chances are that we'll be ensnared by them again. For he who minds the things of the Spirit will walk after the Spirit, but he who minds the things of the flesh will walk after the flesh. And Paul, writing about his three men there in Romans, the The natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man shows that the carnal man, although born again, can still lust after the things of the flesh. Which was the problem in this Corinthian church. For had he not said to them, I cannot speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal. Because they were still minding the things of the flesh. So he warns them that Israel having lusted after the things back in Egypt perished in the wilderness and lost sight of the reason for which they were saved. Verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not laugh after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink, but they rose up to play. And oh, if ever there's a description of many churches today, that's it. They sit down to eat and drink and they rise up in their celebration services uh, to play. And we sing and we clap and we whirl and we twirl and we dance and we prance and fling and twing and what have you. And uh, we do all of these things, but are we doing it to the Lord or is it for our own self-enjoyment? Well, God be the judge of every man's heart. Paul goes on to write. Verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor murmur as some of them murmured, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Brethren, if ever there's a relevancy of a word of God to us today, it is this particular scripture. We need to learn from the history of Israel. And he gives a very stark warning now in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Now that word fall there, keep it in the context of the race. Back in verse 24 of the previous chapter, fall means to fall short of the mark to win the prize. It doesn't mean to fall out of the grace of God. Yes, all sin can be forgiven. I understand that. But he who persists in sin will end up one day perhaps being disqualified and not reach the mark at the end of the day to qualify, to be judged worthy, to inherit As a joint heir, a place on the messianic throne of Jesus Christ to rule and reign with him for the duration of the thousand years. What stands to be gained also suffers to be lost. And so on that basis, the stark warning comes from Paul, citing the Israelites as an example. Very interesting now that he puts this verse here, verse 13 which we often just isolate out and use it to preach a sermon on uh, by itself. But let's keep it in the context uh, of of the subject matter that we are discussing, that is, uh, falling short of that which we are called to. No temptation has taken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will, with the temptation, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I wonder why now he brings in the introduction of the subject matter of temptation, having given them a cautionary warning how that Israel had fallen short of that which they had been called to. And they fell short because of overconfidence. Now, the Bible speaks that we are to be a confident people, but not to be overconfident. What does it mean to be overconfident? It means uh, that we be guilty of uh, sins of presumption or presumptuous sins. Now what are sins of presumption? Sins of presumption are when we presume to be somebody that we are not, or we presume to have something that we do not, or we presume to have qualified for something that we have not. And that is exactly what Paul says here. Let him that thinks he stands, let him that thinks he has made it. Let him that thinks he is qualified, take heed, lest he fall. Short of the mark at the end of the race. And so then, it's an unusual type of race. Let me liken it to a hurdle race. And we've all some of you may have been watching the Commonwealth Games that are on at this present time. I switched on the television there the other morning and they were showing uh, the woman's uh, uh, 100 metres or 120 or whatever it was uh, hurdle race. And I was reminded of the scripture. You see, each one of those hurdles are a particular temptation. They're a particular trial. They're a particular obstacle that we have to overcome on the journey toward the end of that race. And, of course, one of the biggest is temptation. Why is temptation such a big hurdle to which we have to jump? Because he puts that there. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to endure. Now, God knows every one of us. We're all at different levels of spiritual maturity. Some of us are babes in Christ. Some of us have been on the road of Christianity for many years. Others of us are pastors and leaders of men. And God knows our varying degrees of spiritual maturity. So therefore God will not permit us to be subjected to temptations beyond which we have the ability to endure. But endure them we must. Endure them we must. Why? Because what is the prize at the other end? It is to receive the crown that Paul was talking about. The crown that will qualify us to sit with Jesus on his throne, to rule and reign as a joint heir for the duration of the thousand year millennial kingdom of the Messiah. That is the prize. Alright, so with that in mind, uh, turn with me to what James says uh, on the same subject. James. And we look at chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And we'll read there in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, My brethren, count it all joy... When you fall into various trials. In other words, count it all joy. Nobody enjoys a trial. Therefore, you've got to count it as joy. If you understand me. That is why, you know, we've got to have the attitude that was in Paul. When he said, I delight in persecution. I rejoice in tribulation. I take pleasure in mine infirmities. Same language. Count it all joy. When you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Alright, what we see here then, that the testing of our faith produces patience. Now what is a trial? A trial is an external testing. Something that somebody puts in your way. Something not of our choosing. A trial can come by way of a tribulation. A little child could get sick and die. That's a trial. That's a trial. It's a tragedy that we have to overcome. Our brother, our sister could be killed in a plane crash. That's a trial, a tragedy that we have to overcome. Or we might be dismissed from our job. That's a trial that we have to overcome. Or, you know, our church might be burnt down in persecution. That's a trial we have to overcome something the Indonesians are going through at this present time. You see, these are trials that are not of our choosing. But we've got to learn to overcome them. But now the writer goes on in uh, chapter 1 of James, verse 12 now. Now here he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now I don't know what... English version of the Bible that you have, but for those of you that have uh, some translations, the NIV uh, puts it this way and uses the word trial here again instead of temptation. But I want you to see that it's important we see that this is a temptation, not a trial. And so it says here, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now couple that back to what Paul had said in Corinthians. There is no temptation taken you such as is common to man. And God is faithful in that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you have the ability to endure. So he knows our state. But although God tempts no man, because as the verse of scripture goes on to say here, let no man say when he is tempted that he is tempted by God, for God tempts no man. Neither he himself is tempted. But he will permit us to be tempted. The tempter, of course, is the devil, or somebody the devil uses who can be one of his instruments, a fellow human being. But nevertheless, we see temp- he is the tempter. But a temptation to be a valid temptation, unlike a trial. See, we, we, a trial, you see, There's nothing in our heart that wants our church to be burnt down. There's nothing in our heart that wants our brother and sister to be killed in a plane crash. But a temptation appeals to something that's in our heart. A temptation to be a temptation must appeal to a desire in our heart. We must, deep down, want what is offered, otherwise we are not tempted. And so a temptation, to be a valid temptation, appeals to the evil desires of the flesh. And we all have them. And it's these that we must keep crucified on a daily basis. When Jesus said, accept the man, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He cannot be my disciple. Why do we have to take up the cross daily? To keep crucified the fleshy desires of the heart. And that's where temptation will strike. Temptation will appeal to something that you want. I cite Jesus as an example. After having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible said he was hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, If you be the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Take, eat and satisfy your hunger. Did Jesus want the bread? Yes, he did. He was hungry. Yes, he wanted the bread. But he did not want to produce it independently from the father and so he said it is written man shall live man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god and jesus would not independently use his his divine attributes to minister unto himself as the devil was tempting him to do but he wanted the bread make no doubt about that he was hungry the bible tells us that and so a temptation appeals to something that you want. But you we must learn to overcome it. Because if we don't overcome it, what will happen? It tells us there. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted. Hear it now. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own. Own desires, not somebody else's. By his own desires, that desire for what is offered must be within him. He owns that desire. He is tempted by his own desires. And if he does not crucify the cross, by the cross, the principle of the cross, which is self-denial, if he does not crucify that desire, he's in a difficult situation as it will see here. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, which, uh, with whom uh, there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so, my brethren... God has called us to be overcomers. Now, we are saved. This is the point. And there's no need for me to uh, reiterate on that. We established it in the first session this morning. How that by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right. But what we are doing now, we're seeing that having been saved, we are called to work. And we're citing Israel as an example. Paul used that example in 1 Corinthians 10. Now then, I want to pick up that same example in chapter 3 of the Hebrew epistle. Chapter 3. And the apostle starts out by saying, therefore, holy brethren. You see, he's writing to brethren who have already been born again or saved in the past tense. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. You see, Israel were partakers of an earthly calling to an, an earthly promised land. We are partakers of a heavenly calling. All right. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Consider him because he was faithful in, uh, over, as an overcomer having been perfected. Now then, speaking of the house of God, of which Christianity is likened, I want you to notice verse 6. But Christ, as son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now, here we're told that we are Jesus Christ's house, but only on the basis that we hold fast our confidence firm unto the end, rejoicing in the hope that is within us. All right, now, then he gives a stark warning to the church, again citing the history of Israel as an example. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and proved me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now what was the rest? The rest was the promised land. Now what do we learn from the nation of Israel here? God had, as it were, delivered them out of the land of Egypt. How did he do that? By their efforts, not at all. It was solely a deliverance based on the divine grace of God. Of God, all they had to do was to take the Passover lamb and apply the blood to the doorpost. You see, and God, through signs and wonders and great miracles, delivered his people out from the bondage of Egypt through the Red sea, typifying water baptism, and placed them at the edge of the wilderness, and gave the spirit by way of the cloud by day and the fire by night. To lead them and guide them through the wilderness. He saved them by the blood of the Passover lamb. Baptized them in water and in the spirit in type. And then called them to a walk of obedience. Now then, we follow their journey. Now, what was the purpose of the wilderness? You see, was the wilderness just an unfortunate piece of land that existed between Egypt and the promised land? No, there was a purpose for the wilderness. It wasn't uh, just some obstacle that they had to overcome. There was a purpose for it. And if we go to Deuteronomy, go to our Bibles in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we will have a look at verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 2. There we learn what was the purpose of the wilderness. Let's read it. Deuteronomy. Chapter 8 and verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So what was the purpose of the wilderness? It was to prove the nation of Israel that he might know their hearts to see whether or not they would or they would not obey his commandments. That was the purpose of the wilderness, to prove them, to test them. Now then, let's go back to that verse we had in James. Go back to James now concerning the temptation. And in verse 12 it says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, For when he has been what? When he has been proven, he shall receive the crown of life. Who will receive the crown of life? He that endures temptation. He that learns to overcome. He that endures and holds his confidence firm unto the end. That is what I want you to understand, brethren. And so to whom will he give the crown of life? To those that endure. Why? They have endured their their, their testing. They have been proven. And found worthy to inherit the crown of life. Thus qualifying them to rule and reign as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. In that thousand year messianic reign. That is the crown. That is the prize for which Paul was running. To be judged worthy of a position on the throne, and so going back to Hebrews now, it says there, But Christ is Son over His own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Then He gives the warning, showing how that Israel did not hold their confidence, they lusted back after the very things that God had called them from. They moaned against God. They murmured against God. They bickered against God. Even though they saw his miraculous works for 40 years in the wilderness. What were those miraculous works? The Bible says there was not one sick person among them. God miraculously provided for them the manna, the bread from heaven. He even sent them at their request a a plague of quail so that they could have flesh to eat. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't. didn't wear out. You see, God miraculously provided for them. But what was the purpose? provided for them? But what was the purpose of the wilderness? It was to prove them. But now what does he, does Paul rebuke Israel for? Have a look. It says there Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the days of trial in the wilderness. Where your fathers tested me and proved me, saith the Lord. Who was proving who? What was the purpose of the wilderness? That God might prove them. But what did they do? They turned round and proved God. You see, and that's indicative of, the, of, of many in Christianity today. Or, if you're really God, heal me of my disease. If you're really God, provide for me in my needs. If you're really God, do this for me, do that for me. And we keep God out there like a glorified servant, that whenever we want something, we click our fingers and ask him to meet it. You see, that is the attitude of many Christians today. It's a self-indulgent Christianity. Why? Because they serve a God of convenience. A God who will bless them when they want a blessing. A God who will heal them when they're sick. A God who will provide for them when they don't have anything. A God who will solve their problems. A God who will deliver them out of difficulties. Now God is faithful. He will do these things if the motive is right. But in many cases the motive is purely selfish. We're putting God to the test. We bargain with God. And we try to trade off with God. You see, because to us, he's a God of convenience. We just get on with life until we face a problem, then we call up God. Not you people, of course. I'm talking about that other church down the road. You see? And so instead of them submitting and letting God prove them, they turn around and prove God. And what was the problem? He said they always go astray in their heart. What was the purpose of the, uh, of the wilderness? That I might know your heart said the Lord, to see whether or not you will do my will or not. Oh, yes, you see, out of of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They revealed their heart, a heart that was not prepared to do the will of God. They went, see, all sin begins in the heart. The evil desires of the heart. As I mentioned a moment ago, that we've got to keep crucified. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The rest, brethren, I want you to see is the promised land. So Israel was saved by the blood of the Lamb. Baptized in water and the sea. But they were saved from Egypt that they might be saved into the promised land. Now we come to a second aspect of salvation. The present tense. We are saved and we are being saved. Let's just touch a few scriptures so that we can established establish the fact that there is a present tense of salvation. Have a look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. Where Paul is preaching about the power of the cross. When he says how that the message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing. Verse 18 there of 1 Corinthians 1. But notice now the middle of that verse. But to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. To us that are being saved. That is, that are in the process of salvation. But I thought we were saved. Yes, spirit. You see, what part of us was born again when we were saved. Well, what part of Adam died when he sinned? For God had said, the day that you eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. Now, he didn't die physically, and his soul didn't die, although death began to work in those aspects of their bodies. But I want us to see they died instantly spiritually. Their spirit was cut off from God. That spirit by whereby, that faculty of man, whereby he can communicate with God, that was cut off. He was now dead in spirit. Doesn't mean to say he didn't have a spirit, but his spirit was dead to God. And so then, you who were once dead in trespasses and sins, how? Spiritually dead. You hath he quickened. You hath he quickened. In what area? Spirit. And the moment we're saved, our spirit is reborn and reconnected back to the spirit of the living God so that his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. We now have a reunited spiritual relationship with God. For what purpose? To enable us now to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what we've got to consider here. So we've seen then, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 then, to those of us that are being saved. Have a look at 1 Timothy 4.16. Let's go there now. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse, um, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and uh, verse 16. What does it say? It says, we'll read from verse 11 just to get the theme of it here. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in the word. Not to the unsaved, but to the believers. Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy. With the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. That your progress may be evident to all. Your progress. What progress? He tells us in the next verse. Take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You see, he's talking about... a a walk of obedience that will progressively lead to a salvation. A salvation of the soul, which we will establish. Let us go to another scripture in Hebrews chapter 5, 8 and um, 9. Hebrews chapter 5, I quoted this in the last session, but let's just have a quick look at it now. Hebrews chapter 5, where we learn that Jesus had to learn obedience. We pick it up in verse 8, speaking of Jesus. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now here we have a salvation that definitely states the requirement of obedience. Now that cannot be referring to the new birth because never is the new birth ever based on a walk of obedience because new birth is given by grace and by grace alone not of works. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest any man be guilty of boasting. So I want you to see here the fact that the salvation mentioned in this fifth chapter of Hebrews alludes to a walk of obedience It must refer to a salvation other than being born again. And of course, those of you that studied the epistle of Hebrews with me, we saw that the subject matter throughout that uh, epistle is the great salvation, which the believer is told not to neglect. The great salvation, thus distinguishing it from the common salvation. The great salvation. All right, let's look at one other scripture. Let's have a look now in James uh, chapter 1, 21. James 1, 21. Now remember that we are establishing a case for the present tense salvation of the soul. So we go to James chapter 1. We will pick it up in verse uh, 19. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Remember that he's writing to a Christian audience. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness an overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Which is able to save your souls. Now what is going to depend on the salvation of the soul here? By walking into obedience to the implanted word of God, which is able to bring about the saving of the soul. Let's have a look at what Peter says about the same subject. Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, we will pick it up in verse 3. The first epistle of Peter chapter 1 and we're reading from verse 3 down to verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Now this salvation won't be revealed until Jesus returns. In this you greatly rejoice. And now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested or proven by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right, so what do we see here? Again we see James writing to a Christian body, exhorting them to faithfulness, exhorting them to be overcomers, exhorting them to hold on to the hope that is set before them. Which will bring about the end of their salvation. The end of it. Thus seeing, as we saw in James, it is a progressive salvation. And that the end of it will bring about the saving of the soul. Now, brethren, there's plenty of scriptural evidence. We could go to other scriptures like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now is your salvation nearer than when you first believed? And so we could go on all through the scriptures there. On the subject of uh, the salvation of the soul being progressive. Being progressive. I've given you but some verses of scriptures there that justify it. For further reading Get Watchman Nee's book called The Salvation of the Soul. Get Arlen Chitwood's book on The Salvation of the Soul. Read the average commentary on James and you'll see the the same uh, subject matter again, uh, the progressive uh, salvation of the soul. But yet, brethren, it's a message uh, we do not hear in the evangelical church. Why? Because we preach a package deal that once you're born again, Everything is automatically yours by right. But brethren, that is a myth. Certain things are a gift of God that are given you the moment you are saved. Yes, by all means, that is true. But many are given on the basis of reward. All right, so we looked at we are saved, we are being saved. And of course, then there is uh, the future salvation of the body. And of course, we draw that from Romans uh, chapter 8. If you would just turn there briefly uh, with me, Romans chapter 8. And it's in that chapter that we've already discussed the subject matter of uh, being an heir or being a joint heir. And having dealt with that subject of heirship, we now come to verse 18 of Romans 8. And Paul writes on and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that is the sufferings by which will qualify us to be joint heirs with Christ, for the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have. The first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves, grown, eagerly waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption or the salvation of our body. And so, brethren, I want you to see the subject of salvation. Yes, we are saved, spirit. We shall be saved, soul. Uh, Sorry, we are being saved, soul. And we shall be saved, body. And on this matter, Paul said, may the God of peace sanctify you that you be saved, body, soul, and spirit. That you be totally saved, body, soul, and spirit. Come back now, would you please, to Hebrews 3. Having given that warning to the church, he now cautions them that just as Israel were disqualified from entering into rest, how that we now must take heed lest we fall short. And we come now to verse 12. Beware, brethren, of chapter 3, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we, we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of the confidence steadfast to the end. If we hold fast the confidence of faith steadfast and to the end. You see it's conditional. Conditional. And he repeats the warning again. Today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he goes on to say how that Israel could not enter in because of unbelief. We come to chapter 4 now. Therefore. Since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. Exact language that Paul had used in the Corinthian epistle. Let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Let any of you take heed now, lest you fall short. Now what did Israel fall short of? Entering into the promised land. What do we run in danger of falling short of? Entering into rest. What is that rest? It's the seventh day. The seven 1,000 year day of Christ's millennial reign. The Lord's day. The day of rest. And that brethren is what is presented to us. The prize. That we might enter into rest. Now. I don't want to go into the subject matter of rest except to allude to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. In the last two verses, I think it's verse 28, 29, 30, around there, where Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labour, and I will give you rest. And people say to me, there are, Brother Neil. You say that we've got to enter into rest I came to Jesus, he promised me rest. I've come to Jesus, I've entered into rest. But look carefully at that scripture. He said, come unto me all you labor and I'll give you rest. Rest from what? Rest from what? Works of independence. Because people were trying through independent works to save themselves. We cannot do that. Now certainly I'm talking about Works of obedience to bring about the salvation of the soul after we have been born again by grace and not of works. But those works are not independent works. They're works of dependency upon Christ. That's why Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, that is, independently of me. Come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Be joined together with me, so that you work not independently now, but that you work together with me. And I want us to realize we need to understand what it means to work for God and what it means to work with God. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why do we take the yoke? We take the yoke to learn. And how do we learn? We learn as we work. I was telling the students in the Bible school the other day when I first went to Indonesia way back in the late 60s and I see two oxen yoked together, pulling a plough in the paddy field. And I said to the farmer, how do you train these oxen to pull a plough? Oh, he said, "Um, I never put a young bull in the plough by itself. It'll just go amuck all over the field. He said, but I don't train the young uh, bullock at all. He said, what I do is, he says, I get the young bullock and I tie him next to an old bullock. And the old bullock trains the young bullock. How does the old bull train the young bull? He trains him in submission and obedience. What did Jesus learn? We saw it in Hebrews 5. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. So Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn what? Learn submission and obedience. Then what? Then you will find rest for your souls. You see, the first rest he gives. The second one has to be found. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I'll give you rest. Yes, rest of human works. Speaking of now, a rest in the spirit, we're saved. Now we are yoked together with Jesus to work, that we might learn through works of obedience how to find rest for our souls. That's exactly what it says there. You will find when when the work is done. Because the true meaning of rest is a finished work. And so he sums it up in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall, that is fall short, after the same example of disobedience. And then he gives a stark warning for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That leads us into the subject then of the judgment when Jesus returns, which will be the subject matter of our next session. But let's finish this session with a final verse of scripture, which we'll take from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now we have been, we saw in two places in chapter three where it says, if We keep our confidence steadfast to the end. We are the house of God. And then over in uh, another verse, it says in verse 14 of chapter 3, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And now we conclude, and I want to just challenge you, Or let the word of God challenge you from this final verse then of working to bring about the salvation of your soul that you might inherit the right of entrance into the promised messianic kingdom. He says in verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, and if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe unto the saving of the soul. And there I leave the session with you. Consider it now. Take heed to the ingrafted word that is able to save your souls. So do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. What promise? We are not of those who draw back to petition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. God bless you.